Hi everyone, this is Josh from the Narrate team. In week three of Narrate's series, Gifting Wonder, Adam asked the question, what if to understand the type of relationship we can have with God, we must understand covenant relationship? Adam looks to the text for examples of covenant language. So uh, um, this, this morning, you, you guys just candidly have been very excited by this content for a long time and been looking forward to it mostly because it's been so personal to me in the last few months. Uh, there, there was a guy named Greg Boyd who provoked me to think about this stuff and how it relates to mystery and wonder. And then I spent the week trying to put together a, a message around it and found it to be haphazard and mediocre at best. So let me just say before we jump in, the book's better. So just let me know afterwards if you'd like to read the book. But here's the one question that I would like to ask is what if, what if really understanding the type of relationship the God of the Bible invites us into what if that requires that we shift our thinking from a contractual kind of relational mindset to a covenantal mindset? Now, I know those are kind of foreign ideas, but, but, but I guess my thesis this morning is that God frames everything around the idea of covenant, but we are a culture that frames things around contract, and the cost of that is a, I think, gross misunderstanding of the promises God does and does not make to us on our behalf. So we've been in this series called Gifting Wonder. We started by talking about just being the types of people in relationships who ask questions. And then we, the following week said, what if this applies to our relationship with God? And what if being a Christ follower isn't all about what we know, but it's also about the ability to ask questions, to lean forward. We looked at Moses and Job and Jacob and saw how their willingness to ask God a question, to suspend what they know and to step into the, okay, God, but what about this? It, it, it created for a vibrant relationship with God. And so we said, what, what if we were to live that way? Now, I think if, 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 if you were real honest with that content from two weeks ago, one of the natural questions is, okay, but where's the boundary? Like how, how, if, if it's true that mystery and doubt and wonder is, wow, an integral part of, Maybe we should change the sermon to something else. Uh, if it's true that that's a vital part of a relationship with God, if that's, if that's a true statement, then how far do we go before we've moved beyond historic, orthodox, biblical faith into something that, quite honestly, is completely postmodern and not at all what the text experiences? In other words, like, where's the boundary? Because there's a way of wondering and a way of not knowing and a way of doubting, doubting that moves beyond faith too, isn't there? And so the, the, the question for me that stemmed like, okay, so how do we find these boundaries? And I think covenant explains how. Now, first of all, we got to talk about contracts because I would like to compare and contrast contracts. Have you ever, maybe ask it this way, what's the worst contract you've ever signed or agreed to? Ever thought about that? You, you don't have to, because they might be sitting next to you, so you don't have to, I mean, but, but truthfully, like what, I, I was thinking about that this week and uh, what came to mind for me, and I'm going to date myself as a product of the 90s, um, but, but I, I thought of the BMG music contract. Do you remember that thing? I'm kind of old, I know, but it, there's this like list in heaven where it knows when you become a freshman in high school, and then when you become a freshman in high school, they send you this piece of mail, and the piece of mail says that if you just give them your name and your dad's social security number, they'll give you 12 free CDs or tapes and then all you have to do is agree to buy one over the course of the next year and pay like $400 for it, and, and then everything else is free. Do you, do you remember these things? And every, every month, what would show up in the mail? 
the CD that you didn't want. But originally, you got meatloaf, and you got dire straits, and you got cars, and I think they even had the list, like, here's what everybody buys when they're a freshman, like Bob Marley, like, they're all there, all of them. Worst contract. Now, uh, ever thought about why we sign contracts? And let me just say, I... I I, I, I have a lot of respect for my friends who are attorneys. I, I have a lot of confidence in the legal system. It's not lost on me that we have an unprecedented privilege to live in the world that we do, the country that we do, excuse me. And that has a lot to do with the way our country respects and upholds contracts. This isn't anti-contract. I do think it messes up our thinking about God. Why do we want contracts? What did they accomplish? Have you ever thought of that? Because like, you sign them all the time, whether it's the little checkbox in your iOS on your iPod or your iPhone, or, or it's swiping your credit card at the grocery store, or you don't have credit cards, your check card, whatever it is, like whether you're buying a new car or maybe you're a new employee or you're an employer and you have employees sign things. Even, even my sixth grade son, he brought home a contract from sixth grade. It had to do with his behavior and like grades and all these things. Like we sign them all the time. Why? What does signing a contract communicate? In fact, as I was thinking about that this week, I thought of a classic scene from a classic show whose star will be in town next week. So I just thought we should take in this scene from Seinfeld. Go, 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 go. Can I help you? Name, please. Uh, Seinfeld, uh, you made a reservation for a midsize, and she's a small. <laughs> I'm kidding around, of course. Yes. Um, okay, let's see here. 66 years old? Yeah, well, he's in perfect health. He works out. He's vibrant. You'd really like him. Why do people always say that? I hate everybody. Why would I like him? So what do you think? Could you go out with a 66-year-old woman? Well, I'll tell you. She would have to be really vibrant. So vibrant, she'd be spinning. Oh, I'm sorry. We have no midsize available at the moment. I don't understand. I made a reservation. Do you have my reservation? Yes, we do. Unfortunately, we ran out of cars. But the reservation keeps the car here. That's why you have the reservations. I know why we have reservations. I don't think you do. If you did, I'd have a car. See, you know how to take the reservation. You just don't know how to hold the reservation. And that's really the most important part of the reservation, the holding. Anybody can just take them. Uh, I cannot go to a rental car counter without thinking of that scene. And this last week, I was supposed to get a mid-sized Chevy when we were in Denver. My rental car, my, even my own son was making fun of me. A Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> Sorry if you have a Beetle. I know that's not technically a contract, but, but I suppose here's the idea that I'm trying to put in front of you. Don't, let me just ask it this way. Does a contract communicate that you have confidence in the other or quite the opposite? Like, is the need for a contract, is it a vote of confidence in the character of the other or is it the opposite? I mean, couldn't, couldn't we say that, that, that contracts by their very function, and there's a good function for it, because I would just as soon trust the system over the person in most cases, but can't we say that contracts, at their very core, what they communicate is you don't and don't have to trust the character of this other party. You can trust the system. And I guess the question is, is that the way God communicates with us? See, there's contracts, 
but there's also covenants. And covenants, especially in the ancient sacred Near Eastern mind, the, the covenants are entirely different thing. We don't use covenant. It's not a part of our language unless you own a condo like, or, or live in a neighborhood. But even then, we use the term differently than they use the term. A covenant is something that God extends to people over and over and over again, never a contract. And for the longest time in my following of Jesus, I always assumed that was kind of a trivial detail. But as you begin to wonder about God and what we know and what we don't know, I think covenant thinking becomes crucial. And so where I want to go first is in, is in the relationship that Abram had with God. And you begin to see how, how if you'll begin to frame things, in a covenant mindset, it might create ironic new clarity for you. So let's go to Genesis 15, which, you know, there are those moments where, like when you were a kid and you tore into your dad's drill or something and you were going to fix it and then you realized you were in way deeper than you thought you ever would get and that you were not going to get through it. Like that's the way I felt this week when I committed to jumping into Genesis 15. Genesis 15, uh, for those of you that aren't aware, would be held by many a theologians as the most, if not among the top three or four most important chapters in all the Bible. And we'll get into why in just a second. So I'm going to put my toe in an otherwise expansive pond, but here we go. So the context is Abram says to God, um, or God says to Abram, excuse me, hey, Abram, I'm going to bless you and you're going to bless others. Now that, that's kind of a reminder of what God had said in Genesis 12, but he's bringing it up again, even though it hasn't happened yet. And, and, and as God reminds Abram of that, Abram says to God, like, where's, really? Because you've been saying that, but I don't even have any kids. In fact, Abram says, like, God, you, I, I don't get it. You keep telling me you're going to bless me to bless others. Like, that's what it means to follow you is not what I get, but what I give. And, and yet, despite all of that, here I am, and a servant's going to inherit everything I own. Like, God, I've been trying to have kids for 87 years, and there's still no kids. Like, I'm 100 years, like, I'm pretty sure we've tried it out. It ain't happening between us. And God says, hey, Abram, look up at the stars. And as he does, he, he says, so shall your descendants be. Now, parenthetically, we, we would say you're a part of that. The church is an extension of that promise. But it's Abram's response that, that, again, this is among some of the most important moments in all the text. Abram's response to God is simply this. The text says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. See, we think of believe as like we believe the earth is round and it has no cost. Like, it, who cares? It's completely different than what Abram's doing here. Notice, notice Abram just goes like, oh, you said it? Oh, like you're putting your character on that? Okay, that, 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 that's all I, see, that's covenant. The difference between contract and covenant, especially in, in the Near Eastern world of Jesus, is everything. Like contract eliminates mystery, it eliminates risk, it eliminates vulnerability, it eliminates doubt. It, it, that's the design of a contract. A well-written one kind of presupposes everything that might happen. Covenant does the opposite. In fact, covenant kind of assumes problem. It kind of assumes doubt. It kind of assumes mystery. But what you have to go on in a covenant is but you, I can't tell you where this is going. can't tell you how this story ends. Can't, can't tell you, like, how this prognosis finishes. Can't tell you if the chemo is going to be successful. Can't tell you if the marriage is going to be saved. Can't tell you, like, how well your kids are going to do. And I can't tell you that. But I can tell you, you can trust me. That's all Abram had was the word of God. 
And so then God says, and I'm going to give you this land, you know, like this land is your land and it's my land from California. Like, I'm going to give you the land. And Abram's like, you've been telling me that. How do I know that? And again, God says, Abram, we're going to form a covenant. And here we go. Verse 9, it says, So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Now, first gathering, I made the mistake of asking what a heifer was. I had no idea. You farm people. Like, I thought a heifer was just like an innocent word that meant cow. But turns out like my, my virgin ears were ruined as I got explained to me what a heifer was. I, anyway, he, so he brings him a heifer. And then the text says, And Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. So the scene is, and again, this is ancient Near Eastern covenant culture. Like God is stepping into something. In many cultures, when when a man said to you, he's going to marry your daughter, you would say, okay, let's have a little covenant. And the idea behind the covenant is, if you break it, you die. You're telling me you're going to take care of my daughter. I'm telling you that if you break that promise, you pay the penalty with your life. And lots of dads are going, let's move over there. (laughs) So God says, hey, there's this whole covenant tradition. Abram, let's do that. Let's cut these animals in half. Their blood is in between. And then what would happen in this Near Eastern culture was the groom-to-be would walk through the path covered in the blood of these animals. And watch what God does. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch, this is God, appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. If you've ever caught yourself going, why the cross? Why not just a letter? Like, why not just good intentions? Like, is the cross, is it just a sentimental thing or is it just, is it a literal thing? The answer is Genesis 15. God made his commitment to people to the extent that his own blood would keep the promise. That's the New Testament story. That's the biblical story. That's why guys go, Genesis 15, that's where God committed his son to the cross, right there, because he made a covenant with Abram, and though Abram wouldn't keep it, God did. The problem is we don't think in covenant terms. We don't think in promise terms. In fact, the, 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 on, the only thing we have left when it comes to covenant is this thing called marriage. And we have a really hard time talking about covenant in the context of marriage but because there's so much pain around it. Because with the conversation of marriage comes a conversation of divorce, which comes lots of shame. And I just look, you guys, if we're going to move forward from this point for the next 10 minutes, you, you've got to just suspend any voice that would say it's about shame. Divorce is brutal. There's not a person in the room who hasn't been touched by it whether it was yours, whether you were the victim of it, whether you were the cause of it, whether that was your parents or your grandparents or good friends of yours who aren't friends anymore because of it. Pain, excuse me, divorce is brutal. And this is why. Because the promise was on the character of the other. And when that's broken, life is different. There's no words. There's no explanations. There's just, it just is, I think the invitation of the gospel is to take everything you've experienced in the pain and to know that's God's story. 
what he's saying is all the betrayal you feel, all all the harm you caused, all the problems created, that's the dynamic between God and Abram, God and you, and God stayed faithful, which if we're not careful leads to this kind of shame-based thing where we go, well, then I should have too. That's not necessarily, no, no one's saying there's never a place for divorce. But the covenant of marriage is how you understand God's faithfulness towards you. Because in that relationship, you're the adulterer. You're the one that didn't stay faithful. The the gospel story is not your great intentions and how you turn things around and man, you're just worthy of God's love. The gospel story is you left God the groom standing at the altar worse You made him realize all of his vulnerabilities. And he stayed faithful. You ever wonder why Jesus uses marriage to talk about the relationship he has with the church? It's always kind of weirded me out because I'm a dude. Like I don't wear dresses and I've never thought of myself as a bride, right? Over and over and over again, Jesus likens himself to the groom and the church as his bride. Why? Because covenant is at the center of the story. Let's just take a second and look back at first century wedding thinking, look at a famous one, and then I would like to bridge that over to how we understand our relationship with Christ and then ultimately, hopefully, land it, and then I'll pass you the book because it'll make more sense. There's a famous marriage that centers around this idea of covenant. It shows up in Matthew chapter 1. Turns out it shows up in December in our culture. It starts this way. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. Now, in the Near Eastern culture, engagement was where the covenant happened. It was where the promise was made. We think of engagement as this thing that allows you to send invitations and spend lots of money, and if you change your mind, no big deal. For for them, engagement was where the covenant was enacted. It's where the whole thing started. In fact, the situation was a, a girl at 12 or 13 years old, when her body for the first time physically was able to think about these things, after her first menstrual cycle, it was announced to the community, she's available for marriage, and the arrangements her father had been making would finally be finalized. This is an arranged marriage culture. That What would happen shortly after that was, was this, the bride-to-be, the groom-to-be would be brought together for a feast and a ceremony. At the ceremony, these engaged people would covenant to one another. They would promise to one another. In fact, uh, the, the, the groom-to-be would give the bride a gift. You can have some fun in your chair time this week and read John 14. Some think the Holy Spirit is the gift that God is promising to you, the, 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 the gift that happens at this time of engagement or betrothment. From there, they go their separate ways. Because you've got two kids, really. They, just yesterday, she was playing with dolls. Now she's going to be a wife. The idea was that th- th- there would be up to two years before the wedding actually happened. Because the idea was they had character. There was character needed that they didn't have yet. The idea was that, 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 there, that there, there was stuff they needed to learn that they didn't know yet. And so they would go their separate waves. The, the, the woman would go get mentored by other women. She would go hang out. She would go learn. She would go acquire the skills and character she was going to need in marriage. The, the man, he would go back to most likely his own village, in most cases separate villages. He would add on to the family house because they were going to live in a house. Jesus one time says, hey, guys, I got to go. And they're like, where are you going? He's like, I got to go build a house for you. What is he doing? It's, it's, it's all betrothment. The father would finish up, or excuse me, the, the groom-to-be would finish 
up his apprenticeship and whatever trade his family worked in because the idea was he had a moral responsibility to provide for his future wife. And there was this time of expanse and then they would finally come together. That's uh, when they would consummate the marriage. That's when they would move in together. That's when their married life started. Jesus at a supper, his last, they say, said this in the same way, After the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do you ever wonder why Jesus calls you the bride and himself the groom? Some would say, because his time on the planet, it was the betrothment ceremony. It was when God made a commitment to you and you made one to him. And the time of expanse, between now and his return, the time of expanse between now and our moving into the other side of the veil, maybe that's why we find it so tragic when we treat it as the only thing that has to happen is that you have to have your punch card so you get into heaven when you die because the text, its whole concept is this season of your life is for you to develop the character you'll need to walk with God forever. The problem with the theology that says when you die, God waves a wand over you and suddenly you have perfect character. The problem with it is it's not in here. Paul was constantly saying this season is about developing the character and building the trust that you need to have him as your groom. Jesus constantly refers to himself as the bride, excuse me, the groom, and you as the bride. And the idea is, He's covenanted to you. Now, here's where this lands, and here's why on a practical level, this is, I think, can be tremendously helpful. Let me just ask you this. What if you were to frame your current challenges, your current fears, your current apprehensions? Maybe it's financial, maybe it's relational, maybe you're single and you just didn't think you would be again. Maybe someone you love is dealing with real illness. What if you were to frame the pain around the idea of covenant? See, it affirms you don't have control. It affirms God doesn't have these long-listed guarantees for you. It affirms the mystery and the vulnerability. And it says but one thing. I'm faithful. I'm with you. You can trust me. To the extent that the apostle John, who spent more time reflecting on the planet uh, than any of the guys who got to walk with Jesus, said at the beginning of his first letter, okay, guys, here's the deal. After all my thinking, all my learning, all my walking with Jesus, here's what I can tell you. God, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. What is that? It's covenant It's John going, listen, so much unexpected has happened, so much that I can't control. I've been so vulnerable. This has been so scary. I can tell you, he's faithful. He's faithful. What if, what if the cross, what if it's not just a cute exclamation point on the message of a God who wants you to know how much you're loved? What if it's a real life thing that affirms to us that this God keeps his word? And if that means he's got to send his own son to fulfill the promise you couldn't keep, 
He'll do it. And so, yeah, you look ahead and you think, boy, I don't know what the future holds here. I don't know what it holds in my finances. I don't know what it holds in this relationship. I don't know what it holds in this illness. And God stands on the side and says, I'm a covenant-keeping God. Will you trust me? Listen, if the concept of following Jesus is new to you or new but old to you, we, we think those decisions are best left to a conversation. We would love to have one with you. We would love uh, for the person who brought you to have one with you. But the message of the gospel is nothing more than a God who says, I keep my word. I'll be faithful to you. But it's not a contract. It's a promise of my character. Let me pray, God. Oh, Lord, we are on the tip of a very large iceberg and to try to wrap our arms and hearts and minds around your covenant-keeping ways is so difficult. And yet cling to you, we do, God. Would you, by the power of your grace and the part of it that requires effort from us, God, would you give us the courage to trust you and the wisdom to know what that looks like? Amen. If you would like to engage further with Narrate Church, you can find contact information online, www.narratechurch.org. We would love to hear from you.